Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 115. Psalm 115, we'll be looking at a handful of passages today as we continue in our uh, series on the theme of help. And the title of the message today is, O God, Our Help. O God, Our Help. The word help is a familiar word to all of us in this room. We hear the word probably every day when we call or walk into any sort of business establishment, uh, be it a store or a school or a restaurant or a hospital. Inevitably, we encounter someone who says, can I help you? Maybe you work at such a place and you find yourself saying these words to people uh, multiple times every day. Can I help you? The automaker Honda has engineered a marketing campaign to build trust with, with people by advertising itself as helpful. In fact, notice on the screen behind me the registered trademark symbol that they have on the word helpful. Can they do that? That's such a common word. I'm surprised that they are even able to do something like that. Does it mean that no one else is allowed to use the word helpful anymore without their permission? But you've all seen the commercials, the Honda commercials on, on television, some Honda guy or gal wearing their helpful Honda shirt says to a person, it's my job to be helpful And they end up getting roped into having to help people in random ways. Honda even has a website where people are encouraged to submit ways that they or someone else might need help, holding out the promise on this website that they just may end up on the receiving end of some random act of helpfulness. Studies show that the campaign has been successful in building trust with people Because people like people who are helpful. This message that I'll be preaching today is the second installment in a three-part series on the theme of help, which we started last Sunday. And the word help is of great interest to us here at Cornerstone because it serves as the first word of our church's purpose statement, which now looks like this. helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We paid big money for the rights to that word, helping. But here's the point that I want to make. If this is truly our purpose statement, then that makes every Cornerstone member a Cornerstone helper. We each don't have to wear a helpful Honda blue shirt like our safety team does, but it is our job, each of us, to be helpful to people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if this is our job to be truly helpful to others in this journey, then we should go to the Bible and see what the Bible teaches on the subject of help. And that's what we're trying to do in 
this series. Over the last few weeks, I've, I've tried to uh, do my best to run through the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, and have looked at quite a few passages in the Bible where the word help occurs. And here's my best stab at a definition of this word help. A, to give a person what is most needful, or B, to assist a person in obtaining what is most needful. That raises the question, what is most needful? Well, it's things like salvation, forgiveness, knowledge, guidance, power, relationship, purpose, meaning, peace, hope, protection, deliverance from evil, including deliverance from evildoers and any other necessary provision. This morning, what I want to do is I want us to spend some time beholding God, who is presented in Scripture as the ultimate helper to people. Speaking about God, John Piper said this. He says, one of the unique things about God is that he displays his glory by helping rather than by demanding help. That's so true. God needs nothing from us to complete himself. He does not need our help to supply anything lacking in himself, but he has much to give to all of us, and he has made it his job to be helpful to people who see their need and who cry out to him in their need for the help that only he can give. And the best thing that we can do in response is to cry out to this God, to see our need and to cry out to this God for help every day and to point other people to him. That's the best way we can help people in their journey to wholeness. So what I want to do with the time that we have this morning is to just look at four truths about God who delights to be our helper. Four truths about God who delights to be our helper. And the first of these truths, let's word it this way, is that God is the ultimate helper to those who trust in him. God is the ultimate helper to those who trust in him. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, and notice how God is specifically said to be a help to those who trust him. Psalm 115, verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Three times in this psalm, we have our trust in the Lord linked to God being a helper to those who trust in him. God is a help to those who look to him and who trust him. He is the one who gives to us what is most needful, and he himself is the help that he gives to us who trust him. You know, it's one thing to have someone in your life who's willing to help you Uh, But it's another thing altogether to have someone in your life who is assuring you repeatedly of their desire to be a help 
to you. As they assure you repeatedly in no uncertain terms that they are eager to help you. And we see this very kind of eagerness from God in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 10 and following, where God is speaking to his people. And listen to some of the words that he says here. Verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. This is God quoting himself what he just said a few verses earlier. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, verse 14, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes happens to us in our lives that we may actually want and need someone's help, but we're not so sure that they're eager to help us. They seem willing, but they don't really seem eager. So we're reluctant to let them help us out of fear that it might be a burden to them and that it's not something that they really deep down want to do. But guys, we never have to worry about that with God ever. He is absolutely ecstatically eager to be our greatest helper at all times. And we know this is true because of language like what we see here in Isaiah 41. God is a God of unbridled sovereignty and, and power. He created the trillions of stars in our universe He has a name for each one of them. And this powerful God says to us, I will be your helper. I will help you. And we need to drink that in as his people. And fortunately, you know, God does more than actually say words like that. Uh, Sometimes it happens that someone talks a great game about wanting to help us but they don't follow through. They disappear when the need arises, but that's not the case with God. Throughout the Bible, we have testimony of those who cried out to God for help and found him to be everything that he promised that he would be. In Psalm 18, 6, as an example, the psalmist looks back on a time of distress and says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help, and he heard Literally, he hearkened to my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. He was heard and he feels heard by God in his cry for help. And throughout the psalm, he recounts how God came through for him and was the help to him that he needed in his time of distress Speaking from experience, the psalmist in Psalm 46 expresses what he has found to be true about his God. Listen to his words in Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Notice the language here. God isn't just a help. He's a present help. And he's not just a present help, but a very present help. 
That's the testimony of the psalmist. It's what he's found to be true about his God. The word translated present is actually the Hebrew word that means to find. You could translate the expression this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very findable help in trouble. And you get the sense when you read Psalm 46 verse 1 that it would have felt like too much of an understatement for the psalmist to just simply say that God is a help. The psalmist seems to feel that he needs to add words to that and to say he's not just a help. He's a very present help in trouble in order to fully express the truth of what he's experienced personally with God. The Amplified Bible translate the psalmist's testimony as saying that God is a very present and well-proved help in trouble. That's what the psalmist has found. In Psalm 118, verse 7, we see the psalmist straining the limits of the Hebrew language to express what a helper God has been to him. Listen to what the psalmist says in the first half of this verse. In the New American Standard Bible, the psalmist is translated as saying, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Now, that's what the New American Standard says. And if all you did was read what the New American Standard says here at the beginning of verse 7, this statement about the Lord would sound strange to your ears. And it probably should sound strange because it doesn't seem like very high praise, does it? It seems the psalmist is saying, I get help from many people and the Lord is among those who help me. Does that sound like high praise to you? Would you find it odd if someone was giving their testimony and you heard them say, God is among those who help me? Is that really what the psalmist is trying to say here? Something feels awkward about this translation, which should make us want to look at the Hebrew text to find out what's going on. And sure enough, when you look at the Hebrew text, you realize what's going on that makes this challenging to translate. Here's the literal Hebrew of this statement at the beginning of verse 7. Jehovah is for me, my helpers, plural. Now we see why that's difficult to translate, right? The word Jehovah is obviously speaking of a singular person, and the word helpers is plural. So this statement is highly unusual, so unusual that some translators just go ahead and translate the psalmist as saying that the Lord is my helper, singular, while other translations try to capture the plural by saying the Lord is among those who help me, and they get the plural in that way. But both of these options end up diluting the full meaning of what the psalmist is trying to convey, I think. A better solution is to view this plural helpers as what grammarians call the intensive plural or the superlative plural. There are times in 
The Hebrew, when the plural is used to speak of something that is the ultimate in a particular category. For example, the Hebrew word for animal is behema. Behema, that's a singular animal. I could talk about my dog if I were speaking Hebrew and call him a behema. That's a singular, single animal. Uh, But the word used to speak of the ultimate animal in Job chapter 40, verse 15, is behemoth, behemoth, which is plural. The word behemoth literally means animals, but every interpreter knows that the plural is a superlative plural which indicates that whatever is meant by the word animal, this animal being described in Job chapter 40, verse 15, is the ultimate in that category. The same thing happens with one of the words for God. Many of you already know about this, that we see showing up about 2,500 times in the Old Testament. Most of us know that the word Elohim is the plural word for God or El in Hebrew. But we also know that it's the intensive plural, the superlative plural, or some call it the plural of majesty. And what the plural means is that whatever we might think of when we think of the word El, which is a Hebrew word for God, Jehovah is the ultimate in that category. And that's why Elohim is a great name for Jehovah. Every time you see the word Elohim in the Old Testament, you can translate it as ultimate God. And Hebrew grammarians suggest that this is what is happening here in Psalm 118, verse 7. The psalmist is not saying that God is simply his Helper, nor is he saying that God is among those who help him. What he's saying literally is Jehovah is for me my ultimate helper. In other words, whatever is meant by the word helper, no one exhibits the qualities of a helper in my life like Jehovah does. Does that make sense? That's what he's trying to convey. So from this verse, we can infer that God is the ultimate helper to the person who puts his trust in him. If you put your trust in God, you will find yourself together with this psalmist straining at the limits of language to express how much you are finding God to be your ultimate helper. You won't just call him your helper but your ultimate helper far and away above anyone else who plays any kind of a helping role in your life. Part of why we have to strain at the limits of language to express the truth that God is our helper is partly because God is a triune God existing in a plurality of three persons. And the scripture teaches that each of the members of the Trinity has made himself a helper to us. This brings us to the second truth about our God who delights to be our helper. Truth number two is Jesus Christ is our helper. 
Jesus Christ is our helper. In John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure after he has been with them for three years. And he makes a promise to them. Listen to his promise in John 14, 16. He says to them, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Why would Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as another helper? He does so because in his thinking, the disciples already have had a helper at the present time. And that helper is Jesus himself. Jesus has been their helper from God over the previous three years that he's been with them, teaching them and being an example for them and revealing the father to them. And Jesus is more than just a helper to his disciples during this three year span. He's a helper to everyone who believes in him and who receives salvation from him. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 18. He says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. By the way, the Greek word translated come to the aid of in verse 18 is the same Greek word we saw last week in Mark 9 that is translated help in Mark 9.22 and Mark 9.24. So it's not surprising that the ESV and NIV translations translate this word help here in Hebrews 2.18. We see in this passage that Jesus has gone to incredible lengths in order to be our helper in things that pertain to us and to God and even in relation to the devil freeing us from him. He does not give help to angels, but it's said here that he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. And you may say, oh, bummer, I'm a Gentile, so I'm excluded in that. Actually, keep in mind that according to Romans 4, 11, Abraham is the father of all who believe, Jew and Gentile. So that makes all of us who believe in Jesus Christ a descendant of Abraham whom Christ has come to give aid, help to. We learn something in this text about the kind of help we need. I would encourage you to read through these verses again and mind them for Make a list of all the things Jesus has done, and you can infer from that, evidently, I needed these things to be done for me. I needed someone to deliver me from the devil, to deliver me from death and from the fear of death. I needed, evidently, a high priest who would die for me and appease the wrath of God 
against me for my sins. And I'm being told here that Jesus left heaven and came into this world and took on human flesh to help me by doing these things for me. What a helper he is. And look how the writer of Hebrews culminates his train of thought here. Uh, Look at verse 18. Since he himself, since Jesus himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of, or he is able to help those who are what? Tempted. How many of you are tempted ever? Raise your hand. Okay. Guys, take this passage to heart. And don't be ashamed to ask Jesus to help you in your times of temptation. Your moments of temptation are not the time for you to be embarrassed and shrink in shame away from Jesus thinking he'll be bothered that you're being tempted again. Jesus endured all that he endured so that he can be your ultimate helper in exactly those moments of temptation. When you're tempted to lust, to act out in anger, or to commit some sinful act, he's there for you. Your temptations... Your moments of temptation are his sweet spot. He literally died to be your helper in those exact moments. And when you cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me in your moment of temptation, Jesus doesn't roll his eyes at you. Say, man, you're being tempted again. What's wrong with you? No, he is eager. He responds by saying, yes, this is exactly why I took on flesh and why I suffered and why I died so that I could be the one you call upon in exactly such a moment. So feel free to cry out to him for help, to say, Jesus, help me when you are experiencing temptation. Jesus is a wonderful helper. There's a third truth that we should know about God who delights to be our helper, and that is the Holy Spirit is our helper. We see that taught in Scripture. As I read earlier in John 14, 16, Jesus calls the Spirit another helper whom he will send to his disciples. So clearly Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will be a helper to his disciples. In that verse, he tells them that a fundamental task of the Spirit is to be with you forever, providing divine companionship and presence. But the Spirit will do more than just be with his disciples. Later in John 14, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says in verse 26, but the helper, he says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He's telling them how the Spirit will be helping them. In John 15, 26, Jesus goes on to say, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. 
In John 16, verse 7 and 8, he says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples that the Spirit will be their helper in guiding them into truth, and he'll be their helper as they preach the message of the gospel to other people. The apostles will do their part in preaching the gospel to others in the power that the Spirit gives them. But as they do so, they can know that the Spirit of God will be helping by working in the hearts of their listeners while they preach, convicting people of the reality of their sin the reality of God's righteousness and of the judgment of God upon Satan that has been sealed through the death of Christ. The Spirit will be bringing people to these convictions as the apostles and others preach the gospel. Christ goes on to tell them that when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. What a helper the spirit will be to these disciples of Jesus. And the New Testament does not simply teach that the spirit would be a helper to Jesus' disciples in these ways, but that the spirit will be a helper to all believers in some of the very same ways that I've just read that Jesus spoke to his disciples about. We learn elsewhere that the Spirit is also our helper when it comes to our weaknesses. In Romans 8, Paul speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and, and he says the following in verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. How many of you have weaknesses that you can use some help with? Anyone? My hand would go up. I know I do. And here Paul is telling us that the Spirit of God helps our weakness. Evidently, the Spirit of God is not repulsed by our weaknesses. Instead, it seems he's attracted. He's drawn to our weakness. When he sees weakness in us, he doesn't move away from us, but moves toward our weakness and helps us. Paul doesn't say that the Spirit is irritated by our weakness or that the Spirit is frustrated by our weakness. You may have known the Lord for 20 years, and if there's weakness in your life, you don't have to worry about the spirit being irritated that you still have weakness after being a Christian for 20 years. Paul says the spirit helps our weakness. And when you look at the word that is translated help here, almost literally the idea is, is this, that when the spirit sees us with particular weaknesses, he says to the father, father, I'll take this case. Even if no one else dares to touch our case with our particular weakness, the Spirit takes our case because he knows he has what we need. 
and he comes to our aid and he helps us. Maybe we're weak in a given moment because we've been worn down by grief or by our circumstances. Maybe we are physically weakened and this is affecting us spiritually. Maybe we are weakened because of foolish choices that we have made. It doesn't matter. The spirit is here to help us with our weakness. Paul elaborates on how the spirit helps our weakness in verse 26 by saying these words. He says, for we don't know how to pray as we should. We're so weak. I mean, we definitely need to pray regarding our weakness, but we're so weak we don't even know how to pray and cry out for help regarding those weaknesses the way that we should. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Think about it this way. What is prayer but crying out to God for help? That's, that would be a good, decent definition of much of what we do when we pray. It's crying out to God for help. So even in those moments when we don't know how to pray and cry out for help as we should, we're being told here that the Spirit intercedes and cries for help for us with groanings that we could never give expression to. We're also told that whenever the Spirit does intercede for us in this way, he does so according to the will of God. This means, guys, that if you put it together, that if we could but hear the Spirit interceding for us before the Father, if we could hear his words and his groaning, we would say, that's perfect. That is exactly my deepest needs and longings perfectly expressed. And it also means that whenever God hears the Spirit interceding for us, he says, that's perfect. That expresses exactly what I want to do for this child of mine. It is in the prayers, the intercessions of the Holy Spirit for us that our deepest needs and the will of God come together in their fullest, truest expression. Let's say it this way also that God does not just give us his spirit to help us in response to us crying out to God for help. He gives us his spirit to help us to cry out for help in prayer. Because we need God's help to do even that, don't we? That crying out for help to God does not come naturally to any of us. And this means that every time you do, in a moment of desperation, cry out to God for help, it's already a miracle that took a whole lot of doing on God's part to bring you to that point where you would cry out to God for help. You may, in that moment where you're crying out to God for help, you may, in that moment, be longing for some miracle from God in response to your cry for help, but it's already a wonderful miracle that you are even crying out for help. A miracle wrought by the Spirit of God in you. If you want to become better at crying out to God for help, let the Spirit help you with doing that. 
That's part of why God gave you the Spirit. So all in all, guys, just what we've seen so far, the Scripture teaches us that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are helpers to us. God the Father is our ultimate helper, and he loved us so much that he sent his Son to be our helper. And Jesus is an ultimate helper so much that he requested of the Father that he send the Spirit to be our helper. And the Spirit helps us in countless ways. And the result is that we have three members of the Godhead who have come to our aid and have made themselves helpers to us. And it's no wonder that the speaker in Psalm 118, verse 7, says, Jehovah is, for me, my helpers. How does it make you feel to know that wherever you go, whatever your trial, whatever your temptation may be, whatever your weakness, that you always have these three amazing all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving helpers who are very present and stand ready to help you in whatever ways are truly needful. It should encourage you and make you feel pretty good, which is why God says in Isaiah 41, don't fear, don't be dismayed. This should affect the way that you feel. Who else in your life could do anything for you like what the triune God has done for you? Who else stands this ready to help you at every turn and who will never let you down? The only thing left for us to do is to become better at crying out to the triune God for help. And this brings us to the final truth that we should remember about our God who delights to be our helper. Number four, we should choose God as our ultimate helper over all others. We need to make a decision about who our ultimate helper is going to be, and it needs to be God. God is the ultimate helper, but if you don't choose him, and if you don't choose to receive his help, and if instead you're looking elsewhere for your help, then you won't Experience him as your ultimate helper. Hell itself is filled with people who rejected God as their helper and said, no, thanks. The temptation for us in our natural arrogance is to think that we need no help from God. Or perhaps we look to other people or things for ultimate help and we don't look to God Or perhaps we look to ourselves and to our own righteousness for help rather than looking to God. But the Bible teaches us that in the end, those who make it to heaven, they're no better than anyone else. They're just simply those who are willing to admit their helplessness and cry out to God for help, for his saving help through Christ to get them there. That's the difference. So we need to be discerning about this matter of help and who we're getting, who we're allowing ourselves to receive ultimate help 
from, and we need to deliberately choose God as our ultimate help. In Psalm 146, the psalmist says in verse 3, he says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, which includes you. So don't even trust yourself. In whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You have to make a decision here. And you will be blessed if you choose God to be your help. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 118 that we saw a few minutes ago in verse 7 says, The Lord, or Jehovah, is for me, my ultimate helpers. And then goes on to say, verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's like, I've made my decision. And I'm not looking to anyone else to be my help. God, Jehovah, is my ultimate helper. And that transaction needs to happen in all of our hearts. In Isaiah 31, Isaiah the prophet rails against the people of Israel for looking to the wicked for help rather than to God. He says in Isaiah 31 verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots. Because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Imagine that they go down to Egypt and they they look at these horses and they're like, wow, these are really strong. They check out the chariots. Wow, they are many. We think we will put our trust in these things rather than the creator God who's all-powerful. Isaiah then gives this warning to the people of Judah, speaking of God and saying, He, God, will bring disasters. This is verse 3. And will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. This is not on the screen, but in verse 3, Isaiah goes on to say, He who helps will stumble And he who is helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. What God is saying in a passage like this is if his people will not come to him for help and instead try to find their help from the workers of iniquity, God is promising that I will arise against the help that the workers of iniquity will offer you that you're putting your trust in. God actually did this. And the people of Israel were conquered and dispersed by the Assyrians. An awful fate that would not have happened if Israel had simply looked to God for help rather than trusting in chariots and horses. We should all take a lesson from moments like this in Old Testament history and And learn to think and talk like the psalmist does in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is known as the second psalm of ascent that Old Testament saints would sing near the end of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem 
when they came to Jerusalem for worship and they would join with the psalmist in saying these words, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come? My help comes from Jehovah who made heaven and earth. And the mountains that are being referred to here in verse 1 are the hills on which Jerusalem was built as the place where God dwells and where his aid was expected. From where shall my help come? The psalmist is asking himself in this self-dialogue, my help comes from Jehovah is his answer. This is not just an observation that the psalmist is making. It's a choice that he is making. He's resolving to make sure that his ultimate help comes from the right place, which is Jehovah God. And you and I need to make this same deliberate choice. And by the way, it turns out that the psalmist's faith was well-founded because it will be on these very hills, these very mountains upon which Jerusalem was built that a Messiah will appear and be slain as an atonement for sins. It will be among these very hills where the Messiah will be raised from the dead. It will be on these very hills where the Spirit will first be poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and the church will be born, bringing news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the world. Little could the psalmist have imagined when writing these words in Psalm 121, the fullness of the help that God was going to provide from these very hills of Jerusalem. And little can you imagine all the help that God can bring to you if you will but turn to him and let him be your ultimate helper each day. Part of what I love about Psalm 121.1 is that it, it actually reveals a paradigm that's common to everyone who's ever lived. Not everyone says these words out loud, but everyone essentially uses the same paradigm of the psalmist. The only difference is what they fill in the blanks with. Looking at the choices that you make, I would ask you, how do you fill in those blanks? I will lift up mine eyes unto blank. From where shall my help come? My help comes from blank. And what goes in to those blanks in your life? Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it some relationship? Is it your intellect? Your athleticism? Is it your own righteousness? Is it your exercise routine? Is it your diet? Is it your <clears throat> smartphone? I will lift up mine eyes unto my smartphone. From where shall my help come? My help comes from my smartphone, which has so many amazing features. Is it your job? Is it the approval of others? Is it Wall Street? Is it entertainments? 
I'm not listing those things off to say that all of them are bad in themselves, but how much time do we spend looking to these things to such an extent that we never, on some days, even get around to lifting up our eyes upon God and letting our help come from him? Be honest. How many of you had plenty of time this past week to look at any number of these things that I just listed and you never once lifted up your eyes to God and specifically cried out to him for help. I dare you to say daily with the psalmist, I will lift up mine eyes unto the mountains upon which Jerusalem sits from where shall my help come? My help comes from Jehovah who made heaven and earth. And then work your way through the rest of that psalm and chronicle what you will allow this Jehovah God to do for you. And then join the various psalmists in confessing your neediness to God and crying out to him for help. In Psalm 70, the psalmist says, O God, hasten to deliver me. O Lord, hasten to my help. I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Notice how the psalmist tells God that he's needy. He admits that. Most of us don't like to be needy. No one brags about that. So tell me about yourself. Well, you know, I'm really needy. That's probably the biggest thing you need to know about me. No one brags about that. No one likes to admit that, even if they know deep down that they are needy. Here's the psalmist before God, and he's not bragging about himself or his strength. He's saying, I'm needy. I admit it. When was the last time you came before God and admitted that you are needy? In Psalm 79, verse 9, the psalmist says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. We learn here that sometimes the help we need from God comes in the form of forgiveness of sins. When you ask him to forgive you and he forgives you, he's helping you by giving you forgiveness. In Psalm 119, 175, the psalmist says, let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. God's ordinances are found in his word. Essentially, he's looking to God's word to be a help to him. God has given you this book right here to be your help. Have you received help from this book this week? Last week, we saw a father whose son was afflicted with an evil spirit. And he said to Jesus in Mark 9, 22, take pity on us and help us. A couple verses later in verse 24, he says to Jesus, help my unbelief. In Matthew 15, 25, The Canaanite woman came to Jesus and said, Lord, help me. Evidently, God is not put off by our cries for help. He delights in them. And if God would fault us for anything at all, it would be for the fact that we cry out to him for help far less than what we should. This is why the writer of Hebrews urges us to make a habit of coming to God for help. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, saying, let us draw near, let us continuously be drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in times of need. What do you need, God says? What do you truly need? What are your ultimate needs? Do you need mercy? Do you need gracious provision? You can find it all in me because I've made it my job to be helpful to you. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says, makes an observation about himself and he says, I'm allergic to helplessness. He has an allergy and that is to helplessness. But God has taken him over the years to a place where he has seen how helpless he really is. And he's learning to cry out to God, admitting that and cry out to him for help. If you're here today and you have never cried out to God for the grace and the mercy of salvation, I just plead with you to do that today, this moment. Confess your helplessness and your neediness to God and ask him to be your ultimate helper who gives you salvation and gives you the forgiveness of sins He will hear your cry and he will save you. He's a good savior like that. If you have cried out to God for salvation at any point this morning, even in this service or at any point prior, I want to close my message by reading to you from Charles Spurgeon's book, Morning and Evening. This was a a reading uh, for the morning of January 16th, and it serves as a fitting way to close our time together today. Listen to these words, and as I read them, I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to close in prayer. But as I read these words, just drink them in. Drawing his thoughts from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14, that we looked at earlier, Spurgeon says these words, This morning, let us hear the Lord Jesus speak to each one of us. I will help thee. It is but a small thing for me, thy God, to help thee. Consider what I have done already. What? Not help thee? Why, I bought thee with my blood. What? Not help thee? I have died for thee. And if I have done the greater, will I not do the less? Help thee? It is the least thing I will ever do for thee. I have done more and will do more. Before the world began, I chose thee. I made the covenant for thee. I laid aside my glory and became a man for thee. I gave up my life for thee. And if I did all this, I will surely help thee now. In helping thee, I am giving thee what I have bought for thee already. If thou hadst need of a thousand times as much help, I would give it to thee. Thou requirest little compared to what I'm ready to give. Tis much for thee to need, but it is nothing for me to bestow. Help thee, fear not. If there were an ant at the door of thy granary asking for help, it would not ruin thee to give him a handful of thy wheat. And thou art nothing but a tiny insect at the door of my all-sufficiency. I will help thee. O my soul, is not this enough? Dost thou need more strength than the omnipotence of the united trinity? Dost thou want more wisdom than exist in the Father, 
more love than displays itself in the sun or more power than is manifest in the influences of the spirit. Bring hither thine empty pitcher. Surely this well will fill it. Haste, gather up thy wants and bring them here. Thine emptiness, thy woes, thy needs. Behold, this river of God is full for thy supply. What canst thou desire beside? Go forth, my soul, in this thy might. The eternal God is thine helper. Let's pray together. Lord, what a thrilling revelation of your heart. Just in the few passages that we've looked at today. You are the fountain of living water, the source of all ultimate help. And yet we go about weak and anemic and struggling and defeated. And the reason is not because you have failed to be the help that you promised to be. It's that we're trying to go it on our own and we're not crying out to you for the ultimate help that you provide. And so teach us as a people to become skilled at crying out to you and saying, Jesus, help me. God, help me. Father, help me. Spirit, help me. Our purpose as a church is to help people to journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Christ, but we're not really going to be able to do a very good job of that if we ourselves aren't even crying out to you for the ultimate help that you provide. The best thing we can do for ourselves and for those whose lives we touch is to daily admit our need, our neediness, and to find joy and relish in just crying out to you for help. Even when we don't think we need help, that in itself is an indication that we really need help in understanding how helpless we really are. So may we pray this frequent and often, knowing what an infinite fountain of help you are and all that you have done to bring this help close to us so that it is a very present and findable help that is ready to be accessed if we would but cry out. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you this morning. And we ask that you would receive these funds and do much with all that is given for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our helpers. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said.